0: It's Thursday, April 11th, and I'm Laura Lee. Before we get into the craziness that has been this week, I wanted to start with a little bit of history. I've noticed when I talk to Canadians that we really do not know our own history very well. We seem to really know American history even better than we know our own history. So from now all the way until Canada Day, I'm going to be covering a Canadian Prime Minister, and we're going to learn a little bit about Canadian history. Okay. Okay. The year was 1919. It was one year after the end of World War I. Canada was still reeling from the deaths of so many Canadians. The soldiers that had returned were suffering from poisons they had faced during the war. Families were mourning the deaths of many loved ones and unemployment was at a high. Communism was spreading across the globe. The Soviet Union had its first revolution in 1905, and just two years later had its second revolution. China was just a few years away from fully embracing communism. And with the unemployment at such a high in Canada, and the workers still reeling from the end of World War I, Canada looked ready to embrace communism as well. The factory workers felt that the factory owners had made enormous profits on the war and the workers had all been left behind. So, in 1919, the workers from the factories all joined together and formed a massive union. And then they went on strike. The Prime Minister at the time was Robert Borden. He had led the country through World War I and he had also given women the right to vote. We're going to cover this Prime Minister in the upcoming weeks, but today, a different Prime Minister is coming up. So 1919, Wilfrid Laurier passed away. He had served Canada for 50 years. Canada was really at this point in a crisis. Families were hurting, Communism was growing, unemployment was at a high, and Arthur Mann became Prime Minister. He would run the country for just one year. But an election was being held, and what Canada wanted was a warrior. Well, in 1838, 80 years earlier, Canada had been at another crossroads, and a warrior named William Lyon Mackenzie had led a rebellion in Upper Canada, one that would eventually lead to Canada being formed into a country that was somewhat separate from Britain. Now, in 1921, Mackenzie's grandson, ran for the office of Prime Minister and he won. William Lyon Mackenzie King became Canada's 11th Prime Minister. King knew he needed to end the strikes in Winnipeg and in doing so he needed to stop the idea of communism from spreading in Canada. And he did this by sending in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and told them to arrest anyone who broke any law or damaged any property. King put his foot down Hard. There would be no communist revolution in Canada. Soon the workers gave in and they went back to work. But this would only be his first crisis. Great Britain decided they were going to go to war against Turkey. Turkey was attacking Greece because they wanted land back they had lost during the World War. Britain was allies with Greece so they decided they were going to send in troops. The troops Britain was going to send in were Canadian troops. If you're wondering how Britain would be able to send in Canadian troops, well, that's why I said Canada was a country somewhat separate from Britain. We had our own prime minister, but we were still controlled by Britain. If Britain said go to war, we went to war. But King had seen something during the Union crisis. He had seen that Canadians thought of themselves now as Canadians, not as British. So he made a daring move. One that had not been done in history. He said no. Britain didn't need to decide what to do about King saying no because Turkey ended up backing off and left Greece alone. But this second crisis set a tone. King was the Prime Minister of Canada. No member of Britain's parliament was going to tell him what to do. Then in 1923, King met with the American government. Warren Harding had died and Coolidge was a new president of America. King made a treaty between America and Canada. It was a treaty about fishing rights. This was really important because it was the first time Canada signed a treaty. Until this point, Britain had done the negotiating and treaty signing on behalf of Canada. So in 1883, William Lyon Mackenzie led a rebellion to gain Canadian independence. But in 1923, his grandson, William Lyon Mackenzie King, set that independence in motion. Canada was an independent country. We decide when we're going to go to war, and we sign our own treaties. King would be our Prime Minister for 23 years. He would lead us through the Roaring Twenties, a time when capitalism made our country strong. We found the treatment for diabetes we drove cars, we got airplanes and trains, we created hydroelectric dams, farming grew with the inventions of the combine, and Canada became a favorite tourist attraction for Americans. But King also did something not so great. He introduced unemployment insurance and family allowance. This was the beginning of socialism in Canada. While King was determined he would not allow communism into the country, He did allow the very beginnings of socialism. The government would now control how the citizens would save for a crisis. This is the very idea behind unemployment insurance. And what we know about government is that once they control one thing, they only want to control more things. King was a liberal prime minister. He did a lot of good. But he also gave us the seeds of socialism now almost a hundred years later we're in 2018 we have high high taxes and the government controls so much more every year we become more dependent on the government our taxes are rising all the time and the world sees us as a free to use country just come on over and use all the stuff our government is running because taxpayers will flip your bill last weekend 600 people crossed our border illegally and will now have access to all these government-run programs. Okay, last week we talked about the crisis we're having at our Canadian border. Here are some numbers for you. Last summer we actually had to set up a tent city in the Olympic Village because we had so many people crossing illegally. In 2013, that's not that long ago, we had 10,000 people come to Canada asking for asylum. 10, they did this legally at the borders. Last year, it's only six years later, we had 50,405 people come to Canada seeking asylum. And of those, 20,523 were illegal crossings. Think about that. So six years ago we had a total of 10,000. Last year, we doubled that with just illegal crossings. 20,523 people crossed our border illegally and now have access to all our government-run programs. But more than 50,000 people in total came to Canada just last year seeking asylum. The problem is huge. It's out of control and it's going to cost you. In the last budget, Trudeau set aside $173 million to handle the illegal crossing the whole problem has exploded because trudeau sent out a tweet that said canada was open come on over over half of these illegal crossings are from the very same spot in quebec they're crossing and they're fleeing upstate new york it's one of the most beautiful places in north america they're fleeing united states the most free country in the world it's ridiculous but it's also a money maker for the human traffickers. Yeah, there are people who are making money getting these people to the ditch and telling them what to say when they cross the ditch over into Canada where people are waiting for them. Last January, 315 people crossed illegally. And that was a lot and we realized there was a problem. But this January, 1,517 people crossed illegally. So last January, 315 crossed illegally. This weekend 600 people crossed illegally. 600 people walked across our border illegally last weekend. Each of these people will have their claim looked at but there's such a backlog that's now going to take 11 years before we get to see the ones that crossed this weekend. Basically Canada has no border. Unless you're coming here legally then it's going to cost you a lot of money And now it's going to take even more time because we're so busy processing all the people who jumped you in line. Okay, as frustrating as that is, it's not even the biggest news of the day. War is breaking out in Syria. In fact, I normally record this podcast on Wednesday night, so it's edited and ready to go first thing in the morning. But I'm recording it on Thursday because I wanted to wait and see what was going to happen overnight. So if you're getting this later than normal, that's why. First of all, A little reminder that the UN is complete garbage and a waste and needs to be stopped immediately. So Syria is about to get a seat on the board that regulates chemical weapons. Yeah, Syria. Syria is going to be on the Chemical and Nuclear Disarmament Forum for the UN. Because the UN is stupid. Alright, Syria. What is going on in Syria? Let's go all the way back to 1919. That's where we started our podcast today with Canada. But in 1919, there was a peace conference. Germany and the Ottoman Empire had been defeated in the war. The Ottoman Empire was an Islamic empire. For those of you who don't know, because we don't really talk about it much, under the Ottoman Empire, 1.5 million Armenian Christians were put on cattle trucks, driven out to work camps, and eventually killed. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because Hitler was a really big admirer of this, And he copied it and did the exact same thing to the Jews 80 years ago. So the Ottoman Empire was evil. And it had been defeated. And now Syria was left open. Who would take control? The Arabs wanted to self-rule Syria. But in 1920 at the San Remo Conference, Syria and Lebanon were placed under control of France. And the area now known as Israel was placed under the control of Britain. In the next year, Lebanon would be divided off and made separate. So, the 20s. Damascus tries to fight against the French rule, but France would not have it. France marched its forces in. The Syrians tried to hold elections, and they tried to write a constitution. The problem is the new constitution said that only a Muslim could hold office. This, of course, would take Syria right back like they were under the Ottoman rule again. France would not allow this. But in the 30s. France decided to allow Syria to write a constitution and began to give Syria some freedom. By the end of the 30s, Syria was an independent state. Then in 1943, Syria elected, and I'm going to try to say this name, shakri al-Khwati, or something like that. But within three years, the country was completely independent from France. But the feelings of anger towards France would not go away. Today, the Syrians have moved to France under the umbrella of refugees, but they still hate France. And that's why we have the terrorist attacks, and they're becoming so common there now. In 1947, the socialists came to Syria, and they started causing a lot of arguments, and people decided they wanted a new government. So the 40s and the 50s, they're filled with multiple coups in Syria. Then came the 60s. Egypt decided to get involved and the Syrian army ended up seizing power from the government. And this is where we meet a man named Hafez al-Assad. He becomes the defense minister at this time. Hafez al-Assad hates Israel and he hates the Jewish people. He begins to try to find a way to destroy them. Then in June of 1967, Syria, Egypt and Jordan all get together and attack Israel. They assume these three countries attacking Israel all at the same time will mean the end of Israel. The world pretty much sits back to see what will happen. Will Israel be destroyed? They were wrong. Israel wins easily in just 6 days. and This war leaves Syria with basically no air force because Israel destroyed almost all of the Syrians air force. They also seized Golan Heights in order to protect the border from more attacks. So, Hafez al-Assad's hatred of the Jewish people only grows. Then, in the 70's, Hafez al-Assad decides being defense minister is not good enough. So, he attacks the office of the government, overthrows the president, and then declares himself the president. One problem. The constitution says the president must be Muslim. Assad is not a Muslim. Now there are people I hear and they say, you know what, Assad's family is a Christian family. They're not. The reason people say this is because the Assad family is not Jewish and they're not Muslim. But Christianity is not a default setting. If you want to know who's controlling the Assad family, look at how they feel about Israel and the Jewish people. This pure hatred for Israel comes only from Satan. Now, back to our story. So, Hafez al-Assad has made himself president of Syria, but he's not Muslim. And the Constitution says only a Muslim can rule Syria. So the Muslims freak out and protest. And by protest, I mean they riot. Rioting breaks out all across Syria. The new self-appointed President Assad sends the military in to end all the riots. And they are ended. Under extreme force. And many are killed. Most are imprisoned. Under Assad, Syria goes to war again against Israel. October of 1973. Assad convinces Israel to join them in war and try to get the Golan Heights back from Israel. It does not end well for Assad because Israel will not be defeated in a war. So in 1975, in the cold winter months, Assad decides he's going to try negotiating instead of war. He offers peace to Israel if they will just withdraw from all Arab land. They don't agree. In the summer of the next year Syria gets involved in the Lebanese Civil War. Then Iran has its Islamic Revolution. The Muslims are moving once again from a religious ideology to a political ideology. The 80s were the beginning and through the 80s it grew and grew. Iran and Iraq went to war, Syria sided with Iran. This was a huge problem for Israel because Iran is pretty clear, they hate all Jews. They want every single Jew dead as soon as possible. Israel can see at this point that Syria is still a warring state. And the alliance it has with Iran makes it clear, Syria does not want peace with Israel. So Christmas of 1981, Golan Heights officially becomes part of Israel. The 80s are not really a good time for Syria. The Muslim Brotherhood begins to grow and Assad sends a military in tens of thousands of civilians are killed and then war breaks out between Israel and Lebanon when that's because the Muslim Brotherhood they began killing most of the Christians who were living in Lebanon and Israel stepped in to help the Christians so Syria also gets involved in this war Saad sends troops into Lebanon twice in the 80s then 1990 Iraq invades Kuwait the US goes to war operation desert storm. Assad joins with the U.S. and sends his soldiers to go fight in Iraq. The 90s are full of war, talks with Israel over the Golan Heights, and Assad prepping his son Basil to take over Syria. But then Basil is killed in a tragic car accident. And that leaves Assad in control of Syria. But it's clear that someone is going to have to take control soon because Assad is getting very old then the year 2000 we all survived the turnover of the clock but that year assad doesn't survive he dies and his son bashar assad becomes a new leader of syria one of the first things he does is release 600 people who are in prison for their political beliefs and things are looking up things start looking good for about a year but then the muslim brotherhood comes back it's been 20 years since Bashar Assad's father had the military destroy the Muslim Brotherhood. But now they're back and trouble begins to rise. The Muslim Brotherhood thinks under Bashar Assad, maybe they'll be able to rise back into power. And they're still mad that a non-Muslim is leading the country. Maybe they can take power from the young Bashar. Then in 2002, President Bush makes a list of the axes of evil. Syria is on that list. Secretary of State John Bolton says Syria is stockpiling weapons of mass destruction in Damascus. little side note. If you want to know why Donald Trump has John Bolton on his team right now, it's this reason. John Bolton has a very good understanding of Syria and has been involved all the way back since Bashar first took office. Okay, back to our story. Assad makes peace with Turkey after almost 100 years of fighting with them. However, peace talks with Turkey are one thing, the terrorists that are entering Iraq through Syria are a problem, and Assad refuses to do anything about it, so President Bush imposes sanctions. Then in 2006, Iraq and Syria make peace. Now there is a new president in the United States, Obama. Syria is no longer seen as a threat or as part of the axis of evil. In fact, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, meets with Assad in Damascus. The U.S. wants nothing but peace. And in the meeting, Nancy is charmed by Assad. He's young. He talks of peace. He shows he's made peace with Turkey and Iraq. And he wants peace for the whole Middle East. But is Assad peaceful? And can he be trusted? Under the hope of trusting Assyria is now a peaceful country, Obama does nothing while Syria begins to build a nuclear facility. Israel was not okay with that. In that year, Israel attacks Syria. They hit the nuclear facility in Syria and destroy it. Little side note, imagine where we would be right now if Syria had a nuclear bomb. So yeah, let's all thank Israel for that little piece of wisdom that they had. Okay, 2009, Obama sends more American White House security forces to meet with Assad and they help Syria launch its first stock exchange. Once again, Assad charms the socks off of the White House. But the very next year, in 2010, Obama is forced to once again renew sanctions against Syria, because it's clear they still are supporting terrorist groups. And it becomes clear that Syria is building weapons of mass destruction. When the sanctions are again put against Syria, things begin to unravel very quickly for Assad. The next year, in 2011, there was a protest held in Syria. And Assad decided he needed to show that he was in control. The people, they feared his father, but they have no fear of him. So he sends in the military. The military shoot and kill the protesters. This only ends up starting a national-wide violent protest. Assad tries to end the violence by agreeing to release a few dozen prisoners. But it doesn't work. The riots only grow. So, in May of that year, Assad decides he's going to try something else. He sends tanks into the cities that are protesting. People are tired of Assad. It's been almost 50 years of the Assad family. So, the tanks don't stop people. And the fighting actually grows. Here's the complicated thing. The ones rising and protesting are the Muslim Brotherhood. And they want to kill all the Christians. So the Christians in the area are brutally murdered. They are crucified, they are beheaded, the violence only grows. So Assad, not a good guy. Those wanting to overthrow him, also not good. So in November of 2011, the Arab League votes to suspend Syria. This only empowers the Muslim rebels and then the violence grows. Assad at this point has lost all control. So in an effort to try to gain control, he bombs the cities where the Muslim Brotherhood has gained control. Many, many people die. And the protesters now, they don't call themselves protesters anymore because it's obvious they're in a war. So they call themselves the Free Syrian Army. They are a Muslim army. Their goal is to take control of Syria and make the country an Islamic country. Then, if things were not bad enough, June of 2012, Syria shoots down a plane. It's a Turkish plane. So now Turkey now sees itself at war with Syria. In July of 2012, Aleppo is taken captive by the Free Syrian Army. Overnight, the Christians try to escape. Those who do escape are trapped on mountains. Those who do not escape are murdered, brutally tortured, raped, killed. The world does nothing. Even children are rounded up and killed, beheaded and crucified. Then in August of 2013, Assad uses chemical weapons. 300 people are killed. Obama said this would be a red line. If any chemical weapons are used, that would be a red line. But Obama does nothing. Assad agrees he will allow the UN to destroy its chemical weapon stock. Obama later, as he's leaving office, would boast About how he got the chemical weapons away from Assad without going to war. But Syria still had those weapons, and they would use them again many times. Obama decided to let Russia take control of the situation. So instead of the US or Britain, Russia would become the most powerful country in the area. That sounds like a genius idea. So then Russia decides they're going to side with Assad. Now there are three groups fighting there's Assad's army there's the Muslim army, and there's also the Syrian Democratic force. That last group are people who want Assad to step down, and they want democracy to be put in place. So there's two bad groups fighting each other, and there's one good group that both of the other two groups are fighting, and there's thousands of dead civilians. So when people say the problem in Syria is complicated, that's because it is. It's because some of the rebels are actually worse than Assad, and Assad is super bad, and some rebels, we think, are probably good maybe but we're still not a hundred percent sure in 2014 the Geneva leaders from around the world sit down and try to come to a peaceful resolution for Syria but it doesn't work you have Assad who wants to have power and control and won't give up anything and you have the Islamists who want Islam to run the country there's really no middle ground to that so June of that year the Free Syrian army officially changes its name to the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. ISIS is created. They declare a caliphate from from Aleppo to eastern Iraq. We all know what happened from that. ISIS became a world problem, causing terror everywhere. Members of ISIS moved into Europe hosing as refugees fleeing Syria they, and they took their ideology online. They recruited people everywhere. They convinced them that a caliphate had been made. ISIS was winning. Their hatred for Europe, and especially France, goes all the way back to World War I. They're still mad that the Ottoman Empire was destroyed. They're still mad that France controlled Syria. They're especially mad that the Jewish people were given control of Israel. Europe has moved on from World War I. That's forever ago. Most don't even know what World War I was about. But the Islamists know, they remember, and they're still determined to bring it back. By 2016, ISIS was controlling a very large area. Russia and Syrian air forces. They win some cities but then lose them again. Then in January, Russia, Iran and Turkey get together and they ha- make an agreement that they are going to help Syria. Then, al Assad is fighting rebels in a town called Shikon, he drops massive amounts of chemicals and many people die. The world sees the truth. The chemical weapons are still in Syria And Assad has now lost his mind. This time, though, there's a new president, Donald Trump. He immediately orders a missile attack on the airbase. The U.S. sends in troops. Town by town, they defeat ISIS. They back the Syrian Democratic Forces. And then in June of 2017, the Americans shoot down a Syrian fighter jet. It becomes clear America is willing to go to war against Assad. Town by town, ISIS is captured and killed. Having America involved turns out to be a good thing. By Christmas of 2017, Russia declares they've won the war against ISIS. Christians return to their churches that have been controlled by ISIS and celebrate Christmas for the first time in years. But remember, there's three groups. There's Assad, not a good guy. There's ISIS, terrible. And then there's the Democratic rebels. Assad wants both of those groups dead. The U.S. helped kill ISIS. Still, Assad wants both groups. Both groups killed. So when the USA said, we're done, we've killed ISIS, we're leaving, Assad was still working. And he dropped chemical weapons on more rebels. Now, some are debating if Assad is the one who dropped the chemicals. I believe he is, because he's trying to keep control. However, the capsules that were recovered from the area had a marking on them. And it was a German marking. The company that they traced back to these weapons said that they did not sell them to Syria. They sold them to Iran. So Iran, who has been camping out in Syria for a while now, either they dropped the chemical weapons or they gave the weapons to Syria to drop. Either way, they were definitely involved. At the same time, Iran sent drones from Syria into Israel and Israel shot down the drone. The Israel intelligence then found out that Iran had a hangar in Syria. And in this hangar, they were creating drones with weapons. So, Israel bombed the hangar. While Israel is dealing with Iran trying to drone attack them, they're also dealing with Hamas trying to break through the border with 30,000 people mob. Saudi Arabia surprised the world by siding with Israel. They did not side militarily. But they're just saying israel has the right to exist this is important and you're going to see why later one more thing it appears that this week assad carried out a massive killing of thousands of prisoners and he then took the bodies of these prisoners and burned them in a large crematorium this called for some people in the israeli parliament to actually call for the death of assad russia is still standing with assad and russia said any missiles aimed at assad or the Syrian military will be shot down by Russian forces. Any missiles. So Trump set out a tweet and said this, Russia vows to shoot down any missile fired at Syria. Get ready, Russia, because they are coming. Nice and new and smart. You shouldn't be partners with a gas-killing animal who kills his people and enjoys it. So it doesn't look good right now. Chinese airlines have canceled planes going to Israel. They get it. The airspace is just not safe right now. In the land of Tarsus, Russia has taken all its ships and moved them out to sea. And the Syrian air bases are being evacuated. So, people are saying we're about to go to war in Syria. Well, those people aren't paying attention because war has been in Syria for like forever. But there's basically no Syria left. Right now, Iran, Russia, Hezbollah, all these countries are in Syria because they know the country's gone and they want it. Because it's right next to Israel iran especially who wants every single jew on the face of the earth dead they want that syrian land because they want to use it to attack israel meanwhile israel is being attacked by these so-called protesters yesterday hamas used the protest to get an explosive device detonated against an idf engineering vehicle so israel responded and they sent jets and they targeted a hamas military compound in northern gaza as i look through the history of syria I'm reminded of the promises God made to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Syria, and sadly, even the Christians in Syria, have cursed Israel and the Jewish people. And like every other country in history that does that, they've been cursed by God as well. Well, you might ask, do all these countries, why do all these countries seem to always be targeting this little tiny country of Israel? Remember, it's the size of Vancouver Island. It's so small. Well, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 says, This is a prophecy, a word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person, that Lord declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding people reeling, Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who tried to move it will injure themselves. I believe that day is now. We can see the countries surrounding Israel have tried to do just that, and they've injured themselves. Be warned. I believe God is talking not only about nations, but also individuals. Those who go against Israel and try to divide it will be destroyed. And we can see that with the Assad family. Isaiah chapter 17 talks specifically about the city of Damascus in Syria. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities will be deserted and left to flocks which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified cities will disappear. The royal power of damascus the remnant of aram will be like the glory of the israelites declares the lord almighty this is happening the royal power of damascus it's about to be gone 2500 years ago ezekiel wrote in his book chapter 38 that three countries would come across against israel those three countries are now present day russia iran and turkey they would attack God said he's going to destroy them with earthquakes. And they would end up turning their swords on themselves. Those three countries are now in Syria. And they all want Israel's land. Verse 13 of that chapter says some countries will stand up and protest this move. They will say these countries, they just came to plunder Israel. They'll protest, but they'll not actually step in and help. Those countries mentioned or the land that today is known as Saudi Arabia. This is exactly what's happening right now. The church has ignored the teachings of prophecy for the last decade or more. We as Christians are uneducated and unaware of the teachings that God's given us. But God put them in the Bible, so I believe that means he wants us to know them. Your church is probably not going to teach this to you. Really, no churches are. So you're going to have to open your Bible and read it yourself. Most Bibles have maps in the back of the Bible, well, at least they used to, back when churches preached the whole Bible, even, you know, the complicated parts. Here's what you need to do, get two maps, a present-day map and a Bible map. Then read your Bible. When a country is mentioned, look at the Bible map and then find it on the present-day map. Know your Bible, know all of your Bible. Tomorrow, I will have the first video in the series of Daniel and Revelation up on my YouTube channel. I was hoping to have it up today, But life as a mom and wife with seven people in this house, that life got a little crazy this week. However, I will hopefully have it up tomorrow. Last week, I told you that I was going to be attending a debate between a pro-life advocate and a late-term abortion doctor named Dr. Fellows. So I was able to go to that debate. Dr. Fellows had three points. It's legal. Society is okay with it. Lots of countries do it. And by it, he meant late-term abortions. In fact, Dr. Fellows went so far as to say if, de- if society decided abortion was wrong and told him to stop, he would. The basic argument was this, morality is decided by society. In the second half of the debate audience members were given the opportunity to ask questions. One young black man had a question for Dr. Fellows. If you are willing to perform late term abortions because society says it's okay, would you have been willing to enslave and kill black people when society said that was okay? Dr. Fellow's answer was just one sentence. If society doesn't decide morality, what other option do we have? This was a terrifying answer. History has heroes. Most of those heroes are men and women who stood against society when society was wrong. Like everyone who was part of the Underground Railway. Cory ten Boom who hid Jews from the Nazis. Malala who was shot for defending girls rights to go to school, the rebels who stood against communism in 1989, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, the list could go on for a long time. These are heroes because they stood against society and law when the society and the laws were wrong. But Dr. Fellows has a point in his question. If we don't allow society to decide morality, then who does decide morality? The United States of America was started with the idea that people have freedoms not because the government or society gave them those freedoms, but because their creator gave them those freedoms. I'm not an American, but I agree with this statement. My rights are endowed by my creator. Over the last decade, society has moved God out of every conversation. As God was dismissed from every conversation, so was truth. Who decides what's right or wrong? Who decides what's truth or a lie? Without God, morality is just an opinion. Perhaps this is why our society is currently in this massive brawl. We all have different opinions on morality. If we don't use God's law as a measurement of right or wrong, we are left only with society's ideas as a measurement. History, as well as much of present day world, proves this is a really scary measurement. The topic that was being debated was abortion. Is killing a human life morally acceptable if the human has not been born yet? But what if we ask the question, is killing a human life morally acceptable if the human is, insert the race of your choice, or insert the sex of your choice, or insert the religion of your choice? Is murder wrong and is murder evil? Well, why? If we're leaving the answer to that question up to society, then the young black man in the audience has a reason to be worried. I have a reason to be worried. You have a reason to be worried. I believe God created us. And God gave us a conscience. And God gave us the Bible. God came to earth as Jesus Christ. And he showed us how to live. God is the one who measures right or wrong. And wrong is anything that goes against God's laws. It's doing things our way instead of doing things God's way. And the term God gives us is sin. Sin separates us from God. It ruins our relationship with God. It means we will not be with God forever in heaven. But God in his love made a way for us to escape this. God was the way. Jesus, who is God, came to earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then died to be the punishment for our sins. And when we tell God we're sorry, when we confess that sin to him, we turn and say we're going to live our lives God's way when we call out in the name of Jesus Christ our sins are forgiven and we are seen in God's eyes as perfect and holy we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ today is the day to do that if you have never done that before call out to him ask him to forgive you and he will I'm Laura Lee Siemens see you next week